kidnapping, hijacking, ransom on the high seas, and it's not a Hollywood movie. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Maritime piracy has been in the news lately with the release of Captain Phillips, the movie starring Tom Hanks and based on the seizing of the Maersk, Alabama, off Somalia in 2009. Ironically, incidents of piracy in that region have been on the decline, but not in other parts of the world. Piracy remains a serious problem in global commercial shipping, and it raises a number of troubling questions. How can it be stopped? Should ship owners pay ransom for their crews? Should ships carry armed guards? And what are the long-term solutions to a problem that stems from chronic poverty and criminal activity in the developing world? I'm pleased to have as my guest today one of the world's leading authorities on maritime piracy, Martin Murphy, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Foreign Policy Studies at Dalhousie University. He gives us an update on the piracy situation around the world and talks about the various solutions and complications that arise in trying to deal with this critical issue. So here is my conversation with Martin Murphy. Martin Murphy, welcome to the program. I'm glad you've invited me. My sense is that incidences of maritime piracy in the world today have somewhat abated recently. Is that correct? Well, they've certainly abated off Somalia. Um, can't say that they've necessarily abated off Nigeria. Um, we had that incident, what, two, three, four weeks ago, maybe slightly less, uh, of the two Americans being uh, hijacked uh, and being kidnapped uh, by pirates and being held for ransom. And if the ransom payment reports are true, uh, at about $1 million per person, uh, then that's uh, quite a considerable step in the wrong direction. Um, uh, Piracy kidnapping has gone on off Nigeria for a very long time. Uh, but this is a, a major increase in the amount of money that the pirates uh, are, and insurgents, or whatever you want to call them, and it's quite complicated out there, uh, call them, uh, have actually achieved. So um, piracy off Somalia, yes, that's declined. Piracy off Nigeria, um, this has always been more difficult to assess how 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 many incidents are actually occurring because some people are talking about to you know 70, 80 percent under under reporting. So we can assume that the Gulf of Guinea is as bad as it was, possibly getting worse. Um, Southeast Asia, um, it's still there. Uh, it doesn't go away. Uh, it's usually low level, and you get the occasional slightly larger incident, but that hasn't stopped either. So the, the focus, the world focus, has been on Somalia, but all along there have been these incidences elsewhere in the world. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, the, 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 you know, like uh, Sauron's eye, um, um, you know, world attention swivels and, uh, you know, it concentrates its gaze. So it's concentrated its gaze on Somalia for a very long time. Um, 
generally what, what you can say, I think, is, is once Somalia falls below an unacceptable level, then people will ignore it. Um, certainly, if it doesn't affect uh, international shipping and international interests, it drops off the world's radar. So, the, you know, the chronic piracy that continues year on year on year, which is, you know, uh, whether it be petty attacks in ports or, you know, the usual shakedown of, of uh, fishermen or fishermen on fishermen incidents that occur, you know, around the world. And the the, conjunct, the opportunistic um, behaviour of smugglers who might come across a vulnerable boat and will attack it. That just goes on all the time and nobody really pays attention to it. In many cases, because it's never reported. Why are we seeing a decline in incidences uh, off Somalia? Do you have any idea? Well, that's a, that's a complex one. Um, the, uh, the, the, the navies will shoot their hands up and say, it's us, it's us. Um, and the armed teams will say the same, and the ship owners will say and grumble, uh, but say, well, it's you know because we're using BMP, which is best management practice, which is, uh, if you like, a hardening of the vessels with um, you know better procedures, better watch keeping whilst you're in the danger zone, uh, the use of barbed wire and powerful hoses and whatever else you're going to use to try and deter these guys from coming on board. Um, it's it's a combination of really all those factors. What what has always been the uh, objective, or should have been the objective, uh, of the um, various forces that are trying to contain piracy is to change the risk reward ratio for pirates. Um, for a long time, it's been very favourable. The chances of being captured um, were low. The uh, chances of capturing uh, a ship were, were quite high because they weren't taking um, preventative measures. And there was a lot of resistance to that for a long time. We can discuss why that was the case. Uh, and then suddenly all that changed, and you got, first of all, the introduction of BMP. Then you've got more effective naval me measures. You've got the protection of vessels passing through the Gulf of uh, Aden, the internationally recognized transit corridors. Um, whilst the, the Somali Basin was still an area where ships were, individual ships weren't, weren't, uh, weren't protected and therefore ships had to sail, sail a long way off the coast. Um, uh, but eventually it was the armed teams that came on board. So this combination of better information, um, more reporting by the ships as to where they were and where they were in the, in the area, um, the fact that the Gulf of Aden attacks went down and then the pirates were confronted with armed guards uh, on ships, on ships that were already harder, harder to board. All those factors um, really came together. But when the pirates were able to capture a ship, they still um, were and probably still are because there was the recent release. I forget the name of the ship that was recently released. They are still getting top dollar for the ships that they capture, and I think that shouldn't be forgotten. Nor should it be forgotten that uh, although the risk-reward ratio has changed, it could change back again. Uh, if any one of those um, um, factors that have restricted their, their ability to make money and they're restricted their ability to operate go away, so if the armed, you're already seeing the degradation of, of the armed guards on ships, um, if if the BMP practices are not observed, if the navies go away, you know the the opening for pirates, uh, the door that the pirates can push open, it is there, because the infrastructure 
the the, the capital resources and the labor uh, is still there in uh, Somalia, as is the incentive. So if the incentive balance changes, it could come back. I'm not saying it will. And at the moment, the indications uh, are that it's it's looking pretty good. But, you know, the, the infrastructure remains. And that is because the international community really has not gone on shore in Somalia in in the most effective way to try and to change the incentive balances uh, on, on land. Yeah, well, you raise the terrible dilemma that ship owners face, and theoretically they should not be paying ransom because it only encourages further incidences, and yet yeah. when lives are at stake, it's hard to stick to that, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's the only way you can get these guys out. And you, uh, any responsible ship owner uh, must know that the only way that he can get his crew out um, is to pay ransom. There's, there's no, there's no uh, alternative to that. And some of the arguments that are being put forward in government circles is to, you know, to make it difficult, if not possible, if not illegal, to pay ransom were all based on a very callous calculation, which was that we'll lose a few ship, we'll use, a, we'll lose a, a few um, crew. But it's going to be, you know, their sacrifice is for the good of all. Not that they'll have any choice in that, of course, because <laughs> they won't be consulted. But, you know, and, and that I found a, a really quite um, um, very sad way of, of looking at the world. So, you know, it, it, if you like, we, the states, absolve ourselves of our responsibilities to look after, ship, uh, to look after seafarers. Um, uh, and the seafarers are going to have to bear, bear the cost of... Um, um, failure to act. Yeah. So are ship owners pretty much adhering to the recommendations of BMP at this point, a 90-page document that lists in great detail what they need to be doing? Are they doing all those things? I doubt it. Um, I think that there was, in, in, it, it, I think it's the usual bell curve because, you know, there are obviously considerable costs attracted to that, particularly to the armed teams. Um, and the, the the complacency is the great one of the greatest uh, problems that uh, the sh- the shipowning community faces and, and the security t- teams out there face. You know, if you're going to go weeks and months and months without an incident, your level of wariness, your fear, your preparedness to do what it takes to protect your ship is is gradually going to decline. And um, if, shown, if ship owners are paying for this, then they're going to be saying, hey, it hasn't happened, it, we'll take a chance. Because remember, the, you know, the, your chances of being hijacked were pretty minuscule in reality. I mean, less than 1% of shipping passing through the Gulf of Aden and the Arabian Sea was ever attacked. And, and, and it's, those are similar statistics for the Gulf of, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Straits of Malacca and Singapore. Uh, in fact, they were even less than the chances there were, were, were slightly less than they were in Somalia Basin and the Gulf of Aden. So there always was a problem of, you know, it won't happen to me. And then it happened to enough other ships to, to really worry seafarers, probably more than ship owners. Um, and ship owners then, you know, caught up with that when the ransom costs got so high and the fact that, you know, a ship was being held for 40, 60, hundreds of days and, and all the costs associated with that. So um, the, the problem is, is, is complacency. Almost certainly uh, BMP was never observed um, as fully as maybe it might have been. You know, the most professional ships were, and then you get the next tier down, which weren't so good, and so on and so forth. 
Um, yeah, uh, whether BMP is being observed as fully as it should, I don't have an answer to that, but I assume because simple human nature tells me that people don't do everything that they should. As recently as a couple of years ago, the International Maritime Bureau and others were urging ship owners to restrict themselves to non-lethal measures. And yet my understanding is that not a single ship has been successfully captured by pirates that had armed guards aboard. Is that true? And if so, what are we to conclude from that? That's true. Um, we there was for a long time the shipping industry did, just did not want to have arms on board, and there was a whole series of reasons why they didn't. Liability was certainly one. Insurance concerns uh, were another. Um, but it was also the the fact that the crew didn't go to sea to fight. They went to run their ship. They weren't expert gunmen. Um, special, you need special training to be able to fire at targets at sea, and they didn't have it, and they didn't want it. And there were also concerns among ship owners, particularly in um, when you've got multinational crews, um, that if arms are on board, there's always a chance that if an argument breaks out, guns might be used. If you've got an unarmed ship, that's not going to be a problem. But clearly, you know, that changed very, very quickly. I think it was late uh, 2008, 2009. And um, uh, gradually, much, very much led by American pressure, um, the U.S. Coast Guard was saying, you know, we believe our teams are the way forward when other people wouldn't. And then the international shipping industry and the various flag states, one by one, uh, began to change their view. Uh, and we, certainly the armed teams have been very effective. Um, whether the armed, many of the armed teams or some of the armed teams that are now being used are as effective as they should be, uh, as they were when the whole armed uh, team change came in, uh, I think there's quite a few question marks over that. That is to say that the... the uh, the original teams were based on sort of SEALs, uh, special boat squadron uh, guys, Marines, um, who had experience of working at sea uh, and were highly trained, highly professional. Now you're, you're getting people who have, are less professional, people who haven't necessarily served in services that are as professional as the SBS or the SEALs um, or Delta or whatever. Um, and... Uh, there is a fear also that the number of people, number of men in these teams is, is going down. Four was the stated number, though in fact, really to protect a ship, you need more than that. I mean, that was the initial calculation. But four became the standard figure, but already we're seeing teams of threes and twos. Um, and, you know, if they get into trouble, they're just not going to have the manpower to be able to resist. Mm -hmm. And then we have the problem of governments such as India actually arresting crew members who come into their waters with weapons. So have we, we haven't yet solved the problem of being in foreign jurisdictions with arms aboard merchant ships, have we? Oh, we're, we're no, no, we're not. Um, and the, the states that were giving permission clearly were all the flag states. But you've got a real problem, and, and it is a real problem, um, of uh, how you uh, operate these services. I mean, no state... Um, no state feels comfortable with uh, armed ships coming into their territorial waters, even if those arms are under lock guard. Um, 
you know, you contravene a whole series of um, of uh, international rules and regulations. And declaring arms causes problems. People want them taken off the ship, put into lock storage, taken them back again. This is an enormous burden for any ship to to uh, any any ship owner to um, have to bear. So the armed security companies clearly have had to establish, um, in some cases, uh, licensed onshore arsenals and the, the and elsewhere these floating arsenals, which are regarded as a serious issue, um, because the amount of guns and ammunition on board the ships is quite sufficient to to bring down an unstable government and to and to fuel uh, a revolutionary cause. Uh, and you also got bulletproof vests and helmets and night vision gear and you know everything you really need for you know you know a, a, a good coup. <laughs> um, and um, some of these ships are maybe not as protected as one would like them to be. So the, they are a serious issue, um, and it's a serious issue not just for India. India is particularly concerned about this business because it's, it's also particularly sensitive about the whole issue of, of piracy close to its coast. And as you know, it, it is concerned about. Uh, the way that the um, the regions, and particularly the, the the region that Lloyd's has put in place um, for uh, for for war war risk insurance, is run so close to its coast. So it's particularly sensitive about the whole issue of piracy. But but just about every state around uh, the pirate-prone area is concerned about armed teams and um, the use and storage of weapons. Have we seen any deaths of people who ended up not being pirates, innocent fishermen, for instance, being killed by armed teams? Uh, that's that's uh, obviously a very interesting question. I'm, nobody is saying anything. Um, there has been suspicion that accidents have happened. Um, you know, the, the old thing. I mean, you've been to sea. Um, what happens over the horizon stays there uh, in so many cases. Um, but there's there's no particular evidence that anything has taken place. There's just you know the usual stories that things might have happened. Yeah. Now, as you point out, we have seen a concerted effort by international naval for, naval forces. We've seen Task Force 151 off Somalia and the like. But there was a lot of criticism earlier about the so-called catch and release policy that pirates were being captured, but then they were being let go. Has that stopped? Are they actually now being tried for uh, once they are arrested? Well, they are being tried, but of course, the number that are that are, that are at sea is, is and being caught, we're, we're still not sure about that. Um, right from the get-go, there was always there was no real figures as to how many pirates were actually caught and then released, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because so many of them were put ashore on uh, just put ashore. So we don't know exactly if catch and um, release is going on. Um, probably the number of pirates that are at sea now is, is, is relatively small, probably more than the navies are admitting, but certainly less than now than we're going, going to see uh, as early as uh, as late as last year. Um, but the ones that are being captured um, are being put into a judicial process, yes. Generally, uh, Kenya has carried, has done much of the heavy lifting. Um, the Seychelles is now certainly taking an active role in, in prosecuting pirates. So the, those, those are the main, main prosecution centers. And of course, pirates have been brought back here. Uh, and as they've been brought back to you know, the Netherlands, there was the recent high-profile um, arrest of, of Afwani, 
uh, who's the original pirate leader uh, in Belgium. He was lured to Belgium uh, and is now um, you know, being held pending trial. And a number of other states have also, um, have also prosecuted pirates uh, on their home territory. Yeah, my understanding is that Kenya has said that they can't take any more. They're close to being not, uh, not able to take any more. So we have yet to solve this problem, have we, of where to try these people, where to incarcerate them if they're found guilty, where to hold them over many years. Oh, absolutely. This, 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 is a, this, is a, this is a big issue. And one of the things that's been so um, clear amongst this whole piracy incident is, is really, you know, the reluctance of states to, to really, you know, take on their international responsibilities. Remember, under, under UNCLOS, uh, you know, states do have an absolute responsibility to um, try pirates, uh, and yet we've seen state after state, you know, gliding away from that, which you know was personified in the in the catch and release policy. States not actually incorporating proper pirate um, legislation in in their own on their own statute books, and this is one of India's problems, as you know. Um, and uh, several other states have had a problem in that area. Well, you know, because they just don't want these people, and the whole expense of trying them. Uh, is one issue, but there's also some judicial problems about um, habeas corpus, about how long you can hold these people for, how quickly you have to present them to a magistrate. You know, if, if you're going to have to present a, a suspect to the magistrate within 24 hours of his arrest, that's pretty difficult to do if you've arrested him in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Yeah. I want to ask you about some of the long-term solutions. You referred to the idea of going ashore for the ultimate solution. One of them has been to actually do a better job of tracking the money that is paid as ransom and therefore finding the gangs who are behind all this. Has there been a concerted effort to do that, or is there much left to be done in that area? I think there's probably a lot left to be done. There has been a considerable amount of work over the last 12 to 24 months. The World Bank has just published uh, a report. I, I haven't yet read it. I have it here. Uh, I can, it's now in my hand called Pirate Trails, Tracking the Illicit Financial Flows of the Pirate Activities of the Horn of Africa. Um, the, uh, the British and the Seychelles governments uh, set up a special centre uh, near Victoria in the Seychelles called RAPIC uh, that is looking at this, uh, looking exactly at this problem. Interpol has been involved, so we know a lot about who the money men are. We know um, how the money arrives in Somalia. What we then don't know, uh, or don't know in sufficient detail, is what happens to it after that. Most of it actually stays within Somalia. So the idea that you know the money will come in, well, we know that because we can see it drop from the aircraft. We know who's paid it, uh, but what happens after that uh, is is still still murky. Now we hear about some of the financing being traced back to Dubai as well. That must be difficult. Well, I think that's that's inevitable. I think that's inevitable because you know Dubai is in many ways the the commercial capital of certainly that part of East Africa, and there's always been strong. Uh, trade and financial links between the Gulf and the Horn. Um, those links have got somewhat stronger as the influence of Islam has increased within Somalia. I mean, Somalia has always been a, a, a Muslim country, but there has been, as you know, we're, we're, just with this whole, if you like, Islamic awakening over the last 20-odd, 30-odd years, connections between the Gulf and um, 
and Somalia had naturally got stronger and had access to, you know, Somali businessmen have got access to capital in Dubai. Uh, and, and whatever you say, you know, Dubai is a very, very open city and an open market and uh, it, it operates very efficiently because it is that. So I'm not pointing any fingers, as you can hear me not pointing fingers, um, that, you know, there is, uh, if you like, just no real surprise that there is some connections in there. Then there are the really Possible long... Connection. Possible yeah. connections, I would say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The really long-term solutions, I mean, addressing the issues of poverty in some of these countries that make these people susceptible to committing to piracy in the first place, are we seeing any serious efforts, or indeed are those efforts even possible to undertake? Again, a complicated issue. Are things happening? I think people are trying, um, but essentially... It is not up to, it is not going to be the West or even Asian countries coming along with some large project that is going to solve the problem. There has to be, it has, the, the, the solution lies in the hands of the Somalis. We have to help them create a system, or not create a system, because in many ways property rights are well recognized in Somalia. We have to have a deeper and fuller understanding of how the Somali legal and commercial systems work. We have to uh, enable them insofar as we're able to um, inject better capital, better law, better respect for private property. Um, We have to encourage a lot more small business rather, as I said, than large projects. Um, That said, um, you know, we we can work with the grain of the Somali economy. So, looking at how we can improve animal husbandry, um, because so much of the Somali economy depends on um, camel meat, camel exports to the Gulf. You know, how we can have um, better shipping, better roads, better refrigeration. Uh, we can certainly look at the fishing industry. The, the the most important thing, I think, is giving adequate protection to Somalia's EEZ. So those, the fish that are caught in the EEZ benefits the Somali people, not, uh, and not just raided by the deep water fishing fleets. Um, and a whole series of other small incremental steps. I mean, people are saying that if you go to Mogadishu now, it is so different from where it was even 12 months ago. You know, there's a profusion of, uh, you know, even got restaurants, a profusion of hotels, whereas there's small shops are opening again. As you know, one of the most uh, effective and efficient cellular networks in the world is, is in Somalia. Somalia is quite capable of doing a lot of things for itself. But the, the fundamental problem um, is, is, is politics and getting enough security and peace in these areas to enable the natural entrepreneurial instincts of the Somali people, which they're great. They're great business guys. You know, get them to be able to operate efficiently and effectively. Well, maybe we need to make a movie about that. But uh... (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Martin Murphy, thank you so much for helping us to bringing us up to date on what is a really, really complex issue. And I really thank you for your insights. Not at all. Very delighted. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, that's our show for today. My guest was maritime piracy expert Martin Murphy of Dalhousie University. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain. 
We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast. We're streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch over 1,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.